Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. And hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, yeah. I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, oh. Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. I hope you're having a good Halloween month. I certainly am. <laughs> Halloween month, uh, Halloween month number one of your Halloween months. Really, as long as it's fall. I'm having a fantastic <laughs> time in Halloween month, and I have been to, by the time you hear this recording, I'm guessing at least 10 different haunted houses. And Santosh, it's an alternate week. And do you know what that means? Okay. Dude, is it time for everybody's favorite bi-monthly Why, segment? yes, it is. It's time for <laughs> Journal Club! Yay! Woo! <laughs> I, you know, I don't know if our fans and our listeners woo with us, but I hope I they hope they woo. Kermit arms with me. I mean, unless you're driving. <laughs> then hands on the wheel, guys. But have your passenger Kermit arms. It's fun. This week, I'm going to cling to that horror Halloween theme just a little bit longer, and all our Journal Club articles are going to involve Frankenscience. What does that mean? Let's find out. <laughs> I mean, it, it's kind of in the title. We're, we're going to see how we as scientists and medical scientists kind of mash things together. It's alive! This scary. week, the very first story we're going to start with... Actually, I'm going to start with a movie reference. Do you Have you ever seen the 1983 film The Man with Two Brains? I, I don't think I've had the chance to see it. Um, I, I know it's amongst, you know, one of like the great pantheon of like I, goofy comedy. I just adore Steve Martin. He's hilarious and one of the old vaudeville style comedians. 
But in it, he plays a neurosurgeon whose name is Michael Hufferherherher, who, who, without spoiling (laughs) too many of the details and jokes along the way, falls in love with a disembodied brain in a jar named Anne. And the only reason I bring it up is that, you know, he's having this whole relationship with a disembodied brain, and our very first story involves disembodied brains. In fact, it involves a whole muffin tin of disembodied brains, because lab-grown brains can mimic activity of preterm infants. That was the the article title. So let's let's dive into this while everybody, you know, has their gasps of horror. Or amazement. Scientists have been trying to grow human organs, <laughs> including kidney, right. liver, heart, skin, guts from scratch from for at least a decade now. And these are known as organoids. They're not full organs. They're not functional they're not fully formed but they're little itty bitty micro machine miniature versions that help researchers model various diseases and test therapies (laughs) so in the past we had managed to grow stem cells into you know sometimes a small collection of neurons but we had never achieved enough neurons together to begin mimicking brain activity until now (laughs) and you know before this kind of runs away from us and you know, turns into like, you know, brains. Like Krang? Like Are you thinking Krang? I'm thinking Krang. The- okay, before anybody thinks Krang, god damn it. <laughs> when we say that they're kind of functioning, um, the most difficult thing to do is to go from single neurons existing in space to neurological uh, action potential. So the chemoelectrical signals traveling in a pathway in a coordinated fashion from one cell to the next. We could grow the base yeah. structure, but we couldn't get them to well, really perform a lot. You know, for instance, if you looked at it under a microscope, um, you know, these neurons, A, they wouldn't quite have uh, the structure that you would expect to see, for instance, if you took a slice of brain or spinal cord or something like that, um, they were a bit disorganized. And secondly, you know, if you try to send uh, an action potential, which is the the chemical electrical signal, which kind of propagates down from one nerve, you know, down an axon to the next nerve body, down to the next axon, um, that you you really couldn't get that to work. So as we said, there's been a lot of different scientific teams who have been growing organoids for the last decade, but we're going to focus for this story on one particular team and how they grew muffin tins. Okay. Um, I mean, yeah. that's it's not quite the size, but that's the easiest way to think sure. about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So It's, a, it's about a, a muffin so tin. A, is, sure, sure. I, I mean, by the way, this was kind of a leap from you know, much, much smaller organoids, which were a few clumps of cells. So to grow its organoids, a team at the University of California, San Diego, started with human-induced pluripotent stem cells. What are these? They're cells taken from adult skin or blood that then get reprogrammed into stem cells. So you kind of reverse engineer them into stem cells. And then those stem cells can grow into just about any cell in the body, kidney or heart, or in this case, neuron. Scientists achieve this transformation by taking the stem cells, putting them in a solution containing a whole cocktail of transcription factors, which are molecules that guide fetal development by regulating which genes are turned on or off. 
Now, what UC San Diego brought to this process is developing a growth cocktail that the mini brains or neurons can sit in and develop for longer periods of time than in previous studies. And this has really made a big difference because after about two months, two, two and a half months of sitting in this special cocktail, the researchers began to detect scattered brainwave activity of roughly a single frequency. And they compared that to the developing immature human brain. So when you start seeing, you know, kind of the brain spikes, if you were able to put a electroencephalograph on a developing fetus. And by 10 months out, after having been developing and marinating in this little witch's brew, each organoid was roughly the size of a pea. Go ahead and take a look in your <laughs> freezer or your grocery store or wherever you have. Pick up a pea and... <laughs> You, I, I, you have to take a moment here that like, I, it doesn't sound like much, but this is kind of a massive leap. From just developing a neuron that you could look at in isolation for structure to developing an organoid that can generate electrical activity. Whether or not it's generating any kind of directed activity is not even the important point. It's that we've grown enough neurons that they're forming synaptic connections and generating brain frequencies. And that is fascinating it's a little scary um you know this is very 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 cutting edge but here's what we can do with this and and the, you know this is some of the most exciting things if you still regard this clump of cells as just a clump of cells and not a sentient organism the way that even a mouse or or even an insect is real it wants to move around and it avoids danger and it doesn't like pain and you know all these other things that fully formed brains do however it's still making these signals now in a very rudimentary way without hurting any animals even any insects you can go ahead and study rudimentary brain physiology at this level and learn some wonderful things about neuronal synaptic connections without ever having to euthanize, you know, one of our wonderful mice or rat that gives That's so much of their lives. That's a very Buddhist line of thought. You know, without harming any creatures, you can, you know, continue to enlighten us. And that way you can think of this single frequency the neurons generate as OM. The really <laughs> neat thing is at the size of a pea, they were generating first a single frequency. And after a few more months, the mini brain's activity began to zap at a range of different frequencies and became more regular, just as it would in a maturing human brain as it forms new neuronal connections. Now, this is not learning. This is, again, branching out and forming more and more connections, and each connection generates its own frequency. This finding implies that through development, which we've been able to achieve through this new cocktail, the organoids were beginning to establish functioning synapses, which is how the brain communicates, and from where at some point that we still don't understand, the ghost in the machine ultimately arises. It's a scary thought for some, right? Oh my God, but where's the soul? Because it's a scary thought to say that like, and there's consciousness no consciousness arises arising from, from this very, you know, very a kind handful of, of two or three frequencies. They're far We're more not complex even than kind that. Of there. And again, to be clear, no one is going to confuse no. these with an actual yes. brain. They almost certainly don't feel anything because they lack neurons for sensing pain and they lack 
the feedback circuitry for processing pain, even if they could sense it. They also have no vascular supply, so they really can't grow a lot bigger than a pea. Yeah, so they have to rely on nutrients, oxygen, everything else diffusing through the medium in the Petri dish that they're sitting in, the liquid bath that they're sitting in. So we haven't reached levels of ethical concern yet. And in fact, we've reduced levels of ethical concern because this allows us to avoid dissecting you know, rat brains or rabbits or cats or whatever, and instead to start kind of growing our own little brains from scratch. Now, down the road, if we do figure out a way around this blood supply problem and can start growing brains that can generate 10, 12, uh, hundreds of frequencies, kind of like we've done with circuitry, the computer industry, then we may have to worry at some point about developing brains that are conscious, which brings us to the old philosophy question of brains and vats. And then we circle right back around to that Steve Martin movie. At what point do you have consciousness? Um, yeah. But thankfully, we haven't quite reached those <laughs> mad scientist levels yet. But we're starting. We have like the easy bake oven brains, as as I keep thinking, like a whole row of tiny little organi- organoids with, they're cute. They're cute. They're adorable. And <laughs> even though they can't think, they're sparking off little synapses. Um, hopefully this will really, you know, allow us to study some very hidden and unknown processes uh, you know, maybe not in terms of cognition, but even neuron to neuron connections. For those of you who are Googling or asking the question, yes, we do have other organoids and we can talk about them in uh, further detail if you guys are interested. There are little heart organoids, Josh, mm. which just they beat, they boom, 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 boom. There are little gut organoids that form little donuts. All the teeny little parts, a teeny little man or woman. And ethically, we definitely shouldn't. But (laughs) somebody probably. How we're going to breed resistance fighters when the uh, inevitable robot apocalypse happens. In vats, that's so sad. I mean, wasn't that essentially Matrix was? Those guys uh, were being put into vats because the the giant computer needed batteries i stopped watching after the first matrix because the other two were kind of like that well maybe the fourth one will be better oh that's right there's a fourth one coming yes guys if you guys have already like listened to this time machines drop us a comment (laughs) tell us how the fourth matrix is that how podcasts work (laughs) <laughs> our podcast time machine <laughs> can people listen to these episodes in the future and then drop a comment and then we can list we can read the comment retrospectively that- keep them nice keep it classy san diego let's move on to our next story which is actually very well related so let's talk about 3d printing human organs so we already spoke briefly about many versions of brain, kidneys, hearts, or what we call organoids. And the reason that they're grown is to study a whole host of dementia, heart attacks, tumors, but the models stay tiny. The largest one really can't get bigger than a lentil, a pea, an edamame, a tiny bean from your particular culture this stuff to Uh, food that that's gross because that's what doctors do santosh you you and i both remember in path class pathology where everything was related to food you know ovarian chocolate cyst granulation tissue after the granulated Mm. sugar you know it it was very strange how obsessed pathologists were with food 
I don't know about you. I work 12-hour days. That requires yeah. a lot of snacking along the way. Blueberry muffin oh, baby. Come on now. As I said, these these models have largely stayed tiny because of the critical ceiling. And that is they don't have any blood vessels. And so you can't give them extra oxygen and nutrients so they can grow up being strong. Which is uh, right now, and, and we were talking about the ethics and everything just a second ago. That's actually a good thing because the organoids are just as big as they need to be in order to study the basic science of stuff. But as a, for instance, if we're really looking at, okay, well, how do we, you know, grow an entire, entire organ in a vat and then maybe transplant that into a human being or have enough of the organ available where we could patch an infarcted piece of tissue. So like if a person has a heart attack, you could give them back a piece of heart muscle, or if you have a stroke, you could give them part back of a brain. To go back to our gardening analogy, wouldn't it be nice if you could just have like a heart bush on your balcony and <laughs> eat eat all the bacon you want and then be like, oh, this one's given out again. Go harvest uh, another. <laughs> I have a bad, bad feeling that that would get abused in like just so fast. Instantly. And <laughs> and let's be honest, if you could just stop caring about your organs because you could grow your own new ones, who wouldn't? I, well, I'm not I'm not jazzed about that, but okay, maybe. It's better, better than cyborg parts. I guess, yeah. Well, we might have figured out how to get around this blood supply problem. And before I go into who did this... It's by taking cues from what's called the lost wax technique from Renaissance art. Ooh, okay, that sounds kind of cool. Now, are you familiar with the lost wax? The lost wax technique. The lost wax yeah. technique. <laughs> it's a hard word to say. It's really. T- <laughs> no, no, I unfortunately I'm, I'm not familiar with the lost wax. Technique. All right, so. A little art history for you. It's not called lost wax because we have forgotten the technique. Far from it. It's a very ancient method of making Renaissance bronzes or busts or statues would first be very carefully modeled in beeswax and little rods of wax were attached to the model at convenient positions like the underside of the feet or in the ears or on top of the head or wherever. Next, both the statue and its attached rods, with the exception of the tips, were covered or invested, if you want to use the proper blacksmithing term, with a heat-resistant material like potter's clay, which was allowed to dry. So now you've got clay over a wax model of whatever statue or thing you want to do. Oh, cool. Yeah. This is like forging. Cool. Yeah. yeah. And then the whole thing would be heated in a furnace that would harden the clay and burn out the wax. Uh, hence the term lost wax. The wax would melt and run out. And then you'd have a hollow ceramic mold just pierced with little holes left by where those wax rods were. You would then take that mold and fill it with molten metal, such as bronze, through one of the tubes you had left open, while the other tube area would let all the heated air inside the mold out. So you could fully fill this empty clay mold with metal, Then you would let it cool, you'd smash the clay, and reveal the finished statue, now transformed into metal. 
Pretty neat, right? You could never reuse a model. You got one chance at this. And if anything screwed up, you'd have to start all the way from the beginning because you melted your entire, you know, original starting point. There are kind of parts of no return where you have to be very, very careful. Yeah, this is not an, an art, as it were, that lent itself to do-overs. Researchers led by Jennifer yeah. Lewis at the Weiss Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering at Harvard University have come up with a pretty ingenious way of sculpting channels mm -hmm. that act like real blood vessels through these mini organs. And here's the best part. I've spent a lot of time on this show making fun of scientists for being terrible at naming things. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean... Not Jennifer Lewis. We're, we're pretty bad at it. In a Halloween-appropriate <laughs> moniker, okay. she has called this method sacrificial writing into functional tissue, or SWIFT for short, which makes me think, is this approach tailored? Oh, God. <laughs> oh, couldn't resist. Yeah, I knew it was going to happen. I knew it. <laughs> so... No, no bad blood. It's so okay. researcher Lewis starts by making organ building blocks from human stem cells, uh, which, you know, she kind of convinces into becoming many hearts and brains. So hundreds of thousands of these organ blocks, organ blocks are mixed into a slurry and then they're compacted down at a low temperature to form a matrix of cells, roughly the thickness of human tissue. Then she loads that slurry into a 3D printer containing okay. an right. ink and this ink is made of red dye and gelatin and it descends into this tissue <laughs> mixture depositing its contents through the cell matrix according to a pre-programmed branch pattern once the network is printed they heat the mixture up to 37 degrees celsius so the ink melts and the gelatin hardens leaving channels which the researchers then line with the same kind of endothelial cells that you see in human blood vessels so then all you have to do is perfuse these new organs and their channels liquid-rich in oxygen and nutrients. And when the team did this, they kept a 1.5-centimeter mini heart. Think about how big that is for a second. Most people's pinkies are about a centimeter across, like width. And imagine like a tiny width. little heart of that no, size the width, not the length. Yeah. beating on its <laughs> own. And they kept it beating on its own with their faux blood for more than a week. And I can only imagine they came in and checked it every morning like some kind of carnival goldfish. Hey guys, it's still alive! No, no, I mean, they're running more tests than that. They're not just like peeking at it. You know, they're actually, they're probably using, you know, continuous monitoring. No, 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 no. I mean, well, yeah. if you read the story, essentially their experiment sort of ended with the success of creating this sure. blood vessel and perfusing. The fact that they decided to just build out a little mini heart aorta and see how long they could keep it beating was honestly just for oh, the hell of it. Yeah. Like it's right there in the paper. They're like, ah, we already had all this technology. We figured let's <laughs> see if it works. <laughs> right. So while you're right in that they probably did conduct a number yeah. of extra tests, the, you know, let's keep a heart or let's keep an organ going with this blood supply was entirely extraneous to their experiment. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. That's fair. Which is science at its coolest, yeah. you guys. Can you imagine like, oh, all the stuff I wanted to do succeeded. Now I'm just going to, you know, make a tiny little heart beat off in the corner of my lab for no. kicks. <laughs> at first, when you posted this, uh, you know, the article in the show notes, I was like, Cosmo magazine. 
why the hell? <laughs> Not Cosmo, yeah. Cosmos. Cosmos. Yes, like, yeah. Like the space yeah. <laughs> and scientific. But 10 new ways to grow your man yeah. new organs. <laughs> but the little beating heart, the 1.5 centimeter mini heart um, is in a looped GIF. Uh, on the website uh, for for uh, Cosmos Science Magazine. And you can actually watch this little heart beating as it was visualized by this small uh, dedicated camera from the Wiss Institute at Harvard University. But This I- week only, brand new secrets of life, number three will surprise you. <laughs> Yeah, it, it was really cool to see, you know, this this other picture of uh, how they embedded the vascular channels around the heart. This is the slow, steady march of science, you know. So this is the beautiful way that we can, you know, start with a teeny tiny organoid and then vascularize it and vascularize it such that we can, you know, keep blood and something pumping through a mini organoid for about a week and then, you know, get a little bigger, get a little bigger. And and hopefully, you know, we come around to a point where Mr. So-and-so gets a heart attack, but he had set aside some of his stem cells and then, you know, they say, all right, well, you know, give us a little while. Don't don't die. And then a week later, they have a beautifully grown heart. You just, you know, have a homegrown heart and you give it to a Peg, it's happening out. again. Can you go get my spare heart from the kitchen? <laughs> no, no, it's behind the leftovers. <laughs> I don't think this is going to be a weird ass like repo men kind of nonsense. You say that. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I just, you know, just a fresh heart, kind of like ready to go and boom. And it, it would be really beautiful to see something. So like I said, the coolest thing, and like now that we can supply these organs with their own kind of nutrient-rich liquid, we can start growing them larger and larger. So tying that back to our previous story, maybe we can get some brains and bats. No. <laughs> And don't fret everybody else over the ethical dilemma. As much as Dr. Josh wants to rush to making movies real, this is going to take a long, time. such long a killjoy. Time. No X-Men, no real horror <laughs> movies. It's like all you're concerned with is the pure science. In our oh, next right. journal Now let's article. move on to another one, which I find a little creepy. I mean, still great, but terrifying. It involves one of the body parts yeah. that just disturbs me on a fundamental level. Which is, of course, the bones that stick out of your face. Teeth. The parts of your skull just... that your skin doesn't contain. They're just right right out of your but skeleton. It, it... It's, it's the only part of your skeleton you can see to the casual observer. It's not the same thing. These are specialized organs, you know. But yeah, they're, they're teeth. And they're wonderful. They, they help do. Us chew, chew, and chew. it's great that, you know, your skull has found a way to escape from your body. Okay. <laughs> You're just creeping everybody up. There's going to be like a 12-year-old, no, like even like maybe a six-year-old listener and the mom is like, you know, hanging out with the little kids. Like, oh, these little doctors, these doctors talk about science, little, my skull is growing out of my face. And then, you know, you've permanently scarred a child. That's not nice. Let's talk about this. <laughs> it's not even so much it's, the it's teeth true. that this article is really focusing on. It's actually the tooth enamel. And that's what helps protect your teeth and 
mm-hmm. as more specifically, kind of protect the root of the tooth, the nerve that transmits all the information and pain and what you'll kind of have exposed when you get a cavity. Yeah, yeah. and supply so, with uh, blood, right? So We've in the past, if you wore your tooth too. enamel down for whatever reason, such as having too much Halloween candy over many years, you would have to get a filling uh, which could be made of precious metals. Yeah. It could be made of, well, any number of things. But now these scientists in China have figured out a way to make tooth enamel repair itself by applying a special gel, which could help save people from developing cavities that require dental fillings. So Rui, Ken- Rui Kang Tang at Zhejiang University in China and his colleagues made a gel containing calcium and phosphate, which are what real enamel is made out of. And he organized it in such a way to try to encourage teeth to Mm self-repair. And they tested the gel by applying it to human teeth that had been removed from patients. So they're not doing this in in an actual dentist's office, as it were. They're taking, you know, tooths that would (laughs) otherwise go to the tooth fairy. And that's some serious occultist tomfoolery. (laughs) No. No, 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 no. Hear me out here. Away from little the tooth fairy kids. is some They're of the most occultist bull, bull plop ever. Oh, yes, children, place this discarded bone from your body under your pillow for some mysterious yeah. fake creature to come and take away in the night. They'll give you money for these organs while they take them off for some nefarious purpose and you'll never see it again until a new bone grows out of your head <laughs> to replace it. But no, all my stuff was scary. <laughs> It's a sweet little tale that, you know, you you tell kids so that they don't get scared that pieces of them are falling out. No, instead they can be scared that somebody's breaking into their house undetected at night to steal pieces of them that have fallen off their body. Well, yeah. I mean, I retrospectively, Santa Claus, the Tooth Fairy, you know, even the Easter Bunny, there seems to be a lot of mythical animals and creatures and people that are breaking into your house. The tooth fairy is a terrible role model and basically taught young uh, children that you can sell your body for money. The tooth fairy is a terrible role model and basically taught young children that you can sell your body for money. (laughs) That's not... uh, All right, fine. Let's go back to these removed human teeth. And that had been intentionally damaged with acid. One of the acids they used was phosphoric acid, which incidentally is what comes out of Coca-Cola. If you you really want to see what kind of damage Coke and other sodas are doing to your teeth, leave them overnight Mm -hmm. in a Petri dish filled with soda and see what your tooth looks like in the morning. And if that doesn't encourage a healthier diet, I just don't know what will. They then then left these acid-damaged teeth in containers of this... New gel they made, uh, designed to mimic the mouth environment for 48 hours. So it was a gel and a selection of bacteria and fluids that would mimic what it would be like in your mouth at night. Now, in normal tooth development, the emerging enamel is coated in this disordered layer of calcium and phosphate particles that form a matrix that encourages its growth. And that's exactly what happened with the gel. The only difference being the new enamel coating that grew from Tong's gel was only about three micrometers thick, which is about 400 times thinner than it should be. However, with no side effects, the gel could be repeatedly applied to build up this repair layer. So you imagine working this gel into like a toothpaste, and every time you brush your teeth, 
you could actually be adding to your enamel. Yeah. And you wouldn't want to do but that again, too much, you know, because then you'd get those giant teeth like a rodent and you'd have to I was chew just them thinking down. Of the human beaver. Look, man, you're sending me real mixed messages. <laughs> Either I'm supposed to be terrified of teeth this would be or I'm supposed to be excited about outcome, Dr. Pick one. Josh. No, there's a middle ground here. There's get <laughs> Well, <laughs> there's so many middle grounds. That's the whole point of scientific endeavors. I I really love that idea that you could you could have the crystalline uh, calcium phosphate organized over the native enamel, and it could attach the native enamel and then layer crystallize into place. You add another layer and crystallize it into place. Um, a little bit like adding kind of layers and layers of like glaze onto the outside of pottery. The difference being that instead of being an extra layer like a crown or porcelain that could potentially chip off, this would actually integrate with the calcium phosphate that is already in the layers of enamel that you have on the tooth anyway. So it would be indistinguishable from... Now, thus far in the episode, we've talked about new ways that, granted, after a lot, a lot of additional research and many, many years in the future, we could develop new organ transplants, possibly learn new treatments or cures for brain diseases as we study the physiology in directly grown brains, how we could repair aging teeth that may have had worn down enamel. You know what that sounds like, all those things? It sounds like we're figuring out how yeah, to reverse aging. This is a uh, pursuit slash desire slash fear, depending on which scientist that you talk to, that... Um, you know, there we know that entropy works on us uh, as human beings and that, you know, kind of molecules break down, especially DNA, and that if we quote unquote were to live forever, um, you'd eventually start having problems which spring from, you know, normal breakdown of DNA and cells and molecular machinery and these kind of things. And it's, it's not a good idea. But the question is, is aging an inevitable thing? Or is there a molecular clock that you can actually find and potentially even rewind so that you could make kind of like immortal people? Which, of course, has been, you know, the whole purpose of the Philosopher's Stone and Harry yeah. Potter movies. And it's been a holy grail for many, many times. Like, can we reverse aging? Is there an upper limit to how old mm -hmm. humans can get? And another step has been possibly taken as our final story of the night deals with a study that accidentally did figure out how to reverse your age epigenetically. Ooh. Now, we're going to have to get into some real technical terms here because we are not reversing age okay. truly at least yeah, not yeah. in the way you you're think. not uh you're not going to benjamin button someone the epigenetic clock relies on what's called the body's epigenome and that's a whole bunch of chemical modifications such as methyl groups that tag dna so you know, over time as you age, your DNA begins to look a little bit different. It gets some wear and tear on it, like those 
patches in your jeans, <laughs> like that. Well, it's not just that, Josh. We have to remember that there's also repair mechanisms at play in DNA. And whenever you have repair, you have the potential to make mistakes. So you start to get mutations. The collection of these mutations and the wear and tear over the course of a person's life uh, changes. And you can use it to track a person's biological age, which can either lag behind or exceed their chronological age. The easiest way to think about this, think about someone you know who's a lifetime smoker. They probably look older than their stated age, right? right. Yeah, um, yeah. That's, that is genetic damage like <laughs> right in front of you as the various chemicals in the cigarettes have been tearing away at this person's skin, lungs, and respiratory tract. Conversely, every now and again, as a hospital doctor, I am stunned and pleasantly so to come across somebody who looks years younger than their stated age for whatever mm -hmm. reason. So that's the difference between a biological age and a chronological age. And your biological age is measured using your epigenetic genome or your epigenome. So mm -hmm. this study admittedly is not a great study. It's very small. There was no control arm. But for one year, nine healthy volunteers took a cocktail of three common drugs, one growth hormone and two different diabetes medications, one of which was metformin and the other, uh, the name escapes me. And after this year, on average, they had all shed two and a half years of their biological ages measured by analyzing marks on a person's genome. Uh, their immune system, more specifically, showed signs of rejuvenation. Now, this is, again, a very small, uncontrolled study, which means it's not necessarily reliable and it hasn't been reproduced yet. But if true, this has a lot of potential. You know, the headline, and this was in Nature, by the way, was even a little clickbaity. And it said, first hint that body's biological age can be reversed. And I just like, I think I immediately had desked. Oh, yeah, I knew. Uh, I knew even before this. clicking that I'm like, this is hyperbolic yeah. at best. Yeah. <laughs> this is something where, you know, the lay article that we're going to give you guys in the show notes and stuff, you know, we really do encourage you to go down to the bottom and actually click on the reference and read through the entire article, please. Because what we're trying to understand now are, you know, the very, very basic mechanisms of how we age. And you, you, you do that by taking a small cluster of people, healthy people, and doing minimal interventions. Now, this is backed up by other aging trials that we've done, both like in the Petri dish and animal study. This is one of those studies which we can now plug into the building body of evidence for what uh, lies at the very, very It's actually even tangentially related at the opposite end of the scale to our clickbaity article from the last journal club about biomarkers that predict your death in 10 years. 
The scientist who did the study was not trying to reverse genetic aging. That, that was not his stated intent. In fact, he was more interested in studying the thymus gland. And this goes back no. to 1986, where he read a study in which scientists transplanted growth hormone secreting cells into rats, and this apparently rejuvenated their immune systems. And he was surprised that no one had followed up on this result with a clinical trial, thinking, you know, one of the first things to go as we age or in people who are immunosuppressed, such as diabetics, or people with cancer, or people with specific infectious diseases, is your immune system becomes compromised. So if just injecting growth hormone could help restore the immune system, that would lead to a whole host of scientific applications. So this was a theory. A decade later, uh, at age 46, he treated himself for a month with growth hormone and did notice some regeneration of his own thymus. Although this is how a lot of scientists in history have made discoveries, it is not encouraged to <laughs> test things on yourself. There are protocols for a reason, Dr. Frankenstein. It's Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, this wasn't this wasn't a very good ethical look. And and you might say, "Oh, you know, what do you care about ethics when, you know, clearly he decided to go ahead and experiment on himself, you know, where is the ethical violation there? Well, the truth of the matter is even doing things with yourself, manipulating your biology uh, without oversight of, you know, an ethical board and that kind of a thing is very, very notably an ethical violation. I, I think the biggest part of it is that, you know, someone is going to come along and they're going to be the 10th or 12th or 30,000th person to do some wackadoo trial like this on themselves. And it will result in some quantum leap in science. So let's briefly talk about this study, which even admits in its own, you know, abstract, its own paper, that it's not a strong study. And this was an incidental finding and says a lot of work needs to be done. And this is a really important thing. Most scientific papers, if you read through them, will have suggestions in the discussion part for what they could do, you know, what the next generation can do to improve upon the work of the original study. Because every study, ideally, want, should be able to be replicated and improved upon, and that's how science advances, through a series of small consistent failures with little itty bits of sides of success. This study was called the Thymus Regeneration, Immunorestoration, and Insulin Mitigation, or TRIM right. trial. The study to nine white men between 51 and 65 years of age, so very small demographic that can't really be mm -hmm. expanded upon from the results. And scientists did take blood samples from participants during the treatment period, and all nine showed the blood cell count was rejuvenated in each of the participants. They used magnetic resonance imaging to look at the composition of the thymus at the beginning and end of the study. And in seven of nine, accumulated fat, which is what the thymus becomes as we age, had actually been replaced with spontaneously regenerated no. thymus <laughs> tissue, which is the factory from which we create the immune system, which we start with as a child. Now, Later on, our immune system is kind of produced from our bone marrow, but the thymus is an early factory. Think of it as the investor, the Silicon Valley yeah. version of our immune system. <laughs> it's the IPO. But more than that, um, when we're just growing up, so when we're infants uh, and growing into early childhood, 
Um, the thymus actually acts as a school. So it's a place where a lot of T cells migrate in order to learn what is self, so don't attack this, and then what's foreign, so meaning attack this. Um, so that's really what it's for. Regeneration of the thymus is associated with younger humans. Um, so that means like a, a, you know, the actual thymus tissue, the presence of it is associated with youth. However, we don't necessarily know that a rejuvenated thymus includes or, or will result in a more youthful immune system. Like those two things aren't necessarily, uh, you know. So that's it for this week. And let's see, what's a good just the tip now that we've been through all this Dr. Frankenstein type thing? Well, Germany, because Bavaria, which is where Frankenstein's, Frank, Dr. Frankenstein, of course, first created his monster. One of the cool things to see in Germany, separate from Oktoberfest, you're too late. It ended actually in September. <laughs> first in Berlin, it's a wonderland of massive robotic creatures and metal sculptures, and it's maintained by an art collective known as the Dead Pigeon Collective. So throughout this little museum, there's a bunch of scary-looking robot sculptures and also a bunch of people dressed up as random monsters, kind of like a haunted house with actors <laughs> jumping out at you, except this haunting is year-round. You reach it down like this dark, creepy alley, through a bustling city street, oh, and you're never okay. sure if you've gotten to the right location until somebody jumps out and scares you. But the cabinet itself is largely just these sculptures, so that's kind of cool. And then the supposed <laughs> inspiration for Castle Frankenstein is in a town called Multal, Germany. There was It was the home of a scientist known as John, Johann Conrad Dippel, who was rumored to perform electrical therapies and partake in kind of resurrectionist, meaning using stolen body parts from okay. the graveyard. And he was born in 1673, and he might have been the inspiration for Mary Shelley's story that mm -hmm. she came up with. And he, he was known more for being an alchemist, where he did a whole bunch of snake oil type stuff. Um, sure. <laughs> not, not really in that vein of like forming hypothesis forming hypothesis experimental testing you know observation and then you know progression not not really in that path it is a pretty popular halloween type destination now even though the castle is largely in ruins it just has two towers and a restaurant that has weirdly a vegan friendly menu um and then the chapel a chapel remaining and then they have you know scary dinner shows uh and it was actually a U.S. Army base until 2008. And they had, and the Army used to have a Frankenstein Castle run, which finished at the tower. If you would like to see the tower without going to Motal, Germany, you can watch, I think, Ghost Hunters International did an episode there in... That's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with uh, links to 
all the resources we used researching this episode. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts and friends. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, everybody. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I am a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.